Well, it is a, a great privilege to be here with you. Tremendous. Um, I'm probably going to teach on prayer. That's where I was headed. But someone came up to me earlier and brought up the subject of someone really struggling with the idea of God's justice and God's mercy. And uh, when I heard that, I really got kind of excited because it means there are people out there still thinking. Um, uh, I mean, that is, that, uh, you may not know it. If you've ever, th- you've said, well, is he talking about me? You, you may not know it, but in all the scripture, in all the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, it is the greatest problem in, in the entire Bible. You need to know that. So if you're thinking, well, I, I struggle with that, wow, you're a theologian. Um, it is a very, very important topic. As a matter of fact, you can't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ unless you understand that problem. Um, it has been called by some of the greatest preachers in the world the divine dilemma. The divine dilemma. Now, I'm going to just share quickly of why this is such an important issue, and I'm going to explain to you with kind of a, well, I'm going to put it this way. If God is good, he cannot forgive. Now, I know that sounds so incredibly strange to our ears, but that's kind of a a modern way of expressing to you this great problem. If God is truly good, how can he forgive? And you say, what do you mean? If he's good, he's going to forgive. Well, let me give you an example. Let's say that someone commits a terrible atrocity, uh, more than serial killer, let's say genocide. And they wipe out an entire people. And that that person is captured. And that person is brought before a court, let's say even an international court, and stands before the judge. Now this man is responsible for untold number of deaths. And the judge looks down at this man and says, I am slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. I forgive all kinds and types of sin. You're pardoned and free to go. What would be the reaction of even the most, uh, most liberal among those who were viewing? What would be the reaction? They would say, this is horrific. They would say, that judge on the bench is more corrupt, far more vile than the man who actually committed genocide. Because it is the responsibility of a judge to maintain justice. Well, do you see the problem? I want you to go for just a second to the book of Exodus. And go to chapter 34. Now... In chapter 34, whenever we think of the greatest revelation of God in the Old Testament scriptures, of God basically coming down and speaking for himself, we, a lot of times we go to Isaiah 6, don't we? In the year the king Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each one having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly, and one cried unto the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the post of the door moved at the voice of him who cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah, who was a very holy man, who actually, Jewish tradition says that he died for the faith, proclaiming the word of God, being cut in two with a wooden saw. When he saw one glimpse of God, and it was just a glimpse, he said, I'm ruined, I'm undone. So we we think of that, but that's something he saw and related to us. In Exodus 34, God actually comes down. So in 34, look what it says in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him 
as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Now this is the Lord speaking. Everything in scripture is, we can call it a self-revelation, but this is doubly so. This is God not even speaking through a prophet. This is God coming down, speaking for himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. All that is about his character. And all of it's true. And you cannot overemphasize it. You cannot overemphasize these truths. If you're a Christian, the most difficult thing you will ever have to do in this life is seek to comprehend the love of God, the compassion of God, because it is so great you cannot get your mind around it. As a matter of fact, if you were to catch a glimpse of the love of God as it is revealed in heaven, I believe it would shatter your psyche. I don't believe you would be able to comprehend it. I believe that you will have to be strengthened to endure such a love. So none of this can be exaggerated. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. And as a result of his character, verse 7, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, a lot of people, when they study Hebrew, what they want to do, or Greek, they want to go in and they, boy, they want to just tear apart each one of those terms. And you can do that. There's a place for that. But that's not the real purpose of him using three different terms. It's a Hebrew idea of just heaping one term upon another. Like you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's just with every part of your being. And so he is saying, I forgive all types and kinds of sin. And that is a great comfort, isn't it? He forgives all types and kinds of sin. Now, hopefully, you're not thinking, boy, I really know some people who need to hear that. (laughs) Hopefully, when you looked in the mirror this morning and you said to yourself, I hope that's true. You know, even even for someone like me, who's almost 40 years now preaching, people look at you through a distorted lens. Um, I I want to be a sincere man. I want to be a sincere minister of Christ. But if you came to my house, you would be very disappointed because you would just kind of see normal. You would just see normal. Hopefully sincerity, but normal. Just a person. So much like just every other person. We all need to hear this. He forgives all types and kinds of sin. And this is absolutely beautiful. This is wonderful. This is cause for rejoicing. But now we got to get into the other side. Look what he says. Verse 7 who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Wonderful! Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Do you see that's a... Well, the West was built, and you can't understand how important this is. The West was built, I believe, on the Pauline doctrine of non-contradiction. Okay? And what we have here appears to be a contradiction. Now, God is, above all, rational. He's not involved in the ridiculous or an absurdity or a real contradiction. But here we see a problem. He forgives all types and kinds of sin, but every sin that has ever been committed will be punished. How do you do that? How do you do that? Do you see the problem? He forgives all types and kinds of sin, all types and kinds of sin to the very last jot and tittle will be punished. Mercy, justice. One of my favorite, all-time favorite books was written 17th century, William Bates. 
about the harmony of the attributes of God. And what he's getting at is how do you harmonize? God says he's merciful, perfectly so. And over here, God says he's just, perfectly so. That God will pardon and remove wrath from sinners. Every sin and sinner will undergo wrath eternal. How do you work that out? How do you work that out? Now, this is very important because here's here's the way you can work it out in a wrong way. You can diminish the heinous nature of sin. You can say sin's not that bad. It's really not. But we're really not a good judge of that, are we? And I can tell you, not only because our, if I say, well, because our opinions of sin today contradict Scripture, someone will just call me a Bible-thumping fundamentalist. Okay, well, let me use your own words against you. I could bring your grandparents here right now. I could bring them, if they're not living, I could, let's say, bring them back from the dead and allow them to watch the evening news. And what would they say about your culture? What has happened? Send me back to the grave. You have lost reason. You have lost reason. This is the most shameful and yet shameless culture that ever walked the planet. So you can diminish sin. You can solve the problem by saying sin's not that big a deal and God's going to forgive everybody. You can do that. But even your, well, your ancestors would disagree. You see, we're in such a slide that you and I could never be the judge of whether sin's that bad or not. Let let me give you an example. Um, I I have no problem with people going to the beach, so let me me just say that. But, But is it not true that what is commonly accepted as beach wear today, if someone wore that 100 years ago in public, they would have either been arrested or placed in a mental institution. No, that's true, though. It's really true. That, so, so when we go, okay, let's just diminish sin's not that important. It's not that bad. Or we can go to the other side. We can change God. You say, well, that's just, you know, you just have this opinion of God. No, this is a scriptural opinion of God. Well, that's just your interpretation of the scripture. Okay, let's go all the way back to the early fathers, the church fathers. Let's go back to St. Augustine, if you want to, because I'm saying the same thing he said. Let's just go through history. This is what scripture says. Sin's bad and God doesn't change. You see, our culture changed. We already proved that, didn't it? Just with two generations, we have slid into insanity. But see, God doesn't slide. So let's say that human beings have been thinking for several thousand years. Let's just say that. If we've slid this much in two generations, how much has society slidden in, well, thousands of years? As a matter of fact, society would be destroyed today if it wasn't for the fact that every once in a while there is a reformation in which Christianity returns to Scripture. And if it wasn't for that, forget it. Never forget, Romeo and Juliet were probably about 12 or 13. Why? Because you didn't live past 30. And Scripture comes in and changes things every time. All the West, everything good in the East was built upon the proclamation of Scripture. So what are you going to do? Are you going to change the biblical view of sin? Or are you going to change the biblical view of God? Because that seems to be your only two solutions for right now. I was uh, in a Middle Eastern country uh, several years ago and, and uh, God gave me the privilege of speaking to a lot of people that I probably shouldn't have been speaking to because it would have got me in a whole lot of trouble. But I was with these two, uh, there were two young men that came out of the group, very, very wealthy, very extremely wealthy, wealthy Arabics, Muslims. And, and we got into a debate back and forth and they go, yeah, but Allah. And I said, no, Yahweh. They but Allah. 
And I said, let, let me ask you a question. I said, who's more holy, Allah or Yahweh? And they go, well, Allah. And I go, are you going to go to paradise when you, when you die? Yes. How? Well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy. Okay. Have you sinned? Well, yeah, we all sin. And I mean, well, let's go a little deeper. How much have you sinned? Look like you're all pretty wealthy here, and you also look like party animals. So how much have you sinned? And they go, yeah, but Allah's merciful. I said, God's merciful, but he's holier than Allah. He's just. He's righteous. He can't look at sin and go, oh, that's not bad. He can't do that. He's not like us. I'll give you an example. At the very beginning of creation, God believed that life was precious. And now that men and women are in the streets rejoicing with tears because they can kill their baby even after it's born, God didn't slide with humanity. He still loves life. So if you're not okay with just diminishing that sin's really not that bad, that the Holocaust is no big deal, that genocide, that slavery, and all these things really aren't that bad. Those people ought to go to heaven too. If you can't do that, and you can't go over here, you don't feel comfortable with changing the biblical, eternal, immutable view of God, you're stuck with a dilemma. Now, remember what I said? If God is good, he can't forgive. Well, now let me put it really personal. Here's the problem. If God is truly good and loving, he can't forgive you. I've heard evangelists say this, and it literally, I think they ought to take a lot of evangelists, put them on a boat, and send them to an island where there's no people. <laughs> I, I, it's just, it's a mess. And they'll go, well, instead of being just with you, God was merciful. And I'm thinking, do they not teach logic anymore in school? Because what he's saying is God's mercy is unjust. You see, when the, Bible, when the Bible talks about the love of God, it's not just talking about an action. It's not even just talking about disposition. He is love. He cannot cease to be love. Even on the day of judgment, God will be love. Do you see? In the same way, though, God is just. He cannot do anything less than perfect justice. So here we have a perfectly loving God and a perfectly just God. What does he do? Spurgeon would make a big deal of this. You know, the mystery angels peer over into the gospel looking for the answer. Where is it? Now, just go for a moment to uh, Proverbs. Now, this is just a proverb. Chapter 17, it's a proverb, but it applies. Chapter 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now look what it says. He who condemns the righteous is an abomination. Now the word abomination, it, it's, it's basically the strongest, hardest word you're going to get in Hebrew. I mean abomination, you don't go any lower than this in the eyes of God. It's an abomination. Not only does it bring wrath, it brings disgust. It is an abomination. So anyone who does what? Condemns a righteous man, it's a disgusting abomination to God which will bring his wrath. If rulers do that, rulers will pay for it. But look what else it says. He who justifies the wicked is also an abomination. Equally. An abomination. He who, anyone in the mind of God who justifies a wicked man is an abomination. Now, does that not present a problem? Why? Most of our songs today are what? God justifies the wicked. Is that not true? When you say God justified me, 
You're saying God justified the wicked. All our hymns are saying that God justifies the wicked. The whole argument of the Apostle Paul over and over and over again in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, over and over, man, God justifies. Man cannot justify himself before God, but God justifies sinners. Yet Proverbs says, to justify a sinner is an abomination. So we get to the big question. How can God pardon, justify a sinner without contradicting his nature, without literally as deity disintegrating and becoming abominable? I want you to see, this is not a little question. This is not some scholastic plaything like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. This is the core. And what's amazing to me is even the great gospel preachers, many of them today hardly ever bring this up. Yet when I have done historical studies from Augustine all the way to Martin Lloyd-Jones, I find it to be their principal idea whenever they preach the gospel. I learned something years ago from John MacArthur. I just heard this statement. I don't know if he made a big deal out of it, but it was a, became a big deal to me. He said he would, when he wanted to share the gospel, he would just be straightforward and say, have you ever understood the gospel? And so when I'm sitting on a plane, I don't dance around or try to manipulate my way into someone's life. I just look at them and go, have you ever understood the gospel? It's a novel idea. And they go, well, no. And I go, well, here's the problem. If God's good, he cannot pardon you. Now, I'm saying it in modern vernacular, but I'm drawing it from Scripture and from the church fathers, the Puritans, the reformers, the early evangelicals, it was the big deal because it's the big deal in Scripture. Now, let me show you how big a deal it is. Go over to Romans 3. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, here's one of the problems. We live in a culture that has either eradicated sin or redefined sin or a person blatantly caught in sin can practice, well, it's not even self-denial. It's the denial of reality. For example, when a biological male says, I'm a woman, you see, or, or vice versa. It, we, we have literally become a society that can defy literally what's right in front of us. And, and for years, apologists kept saying this is going to be the result. Well, first of all, it was said, you remove God from academics, and this is what's going to happen. No one believed that or took it serious. Then it got to the postmodernism. This is going to, you know, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and others were saying, this is eventually going to take us to a point where language has no meaning. Now we're in a place where nothing has meaning. Even mathematics... As I was discussing with one man, I think a rocket scientist today, it's, it's called the finger of God. The, the fact that mathematics works just sometimes keeps, it boggles my mind. It's proof and the blueprint of God, of a created order. Now, where was I? Oh. All have sinned. It's just a reality. I remember this movie star railing about the, you know, the, the politicians and the government and all this, and why can't there just be peace? And it's, it would be so easy. Let's just have peace. Yet he divorced five women. I'm going, you, what? I don't think you have the moral high ground here. You can't deal with one person. And you're mad at people because they can't deal with seven billion. The fact of the matter is, look at our world. Look what's going on. It's, you cannot fathom it anymore. Someone asks me all the time, you know, if I'm in a 
theological setting and someone says, why do you believe the Bible? I go back to Calvin and the idea of the illuminating and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the truthfulness of Scripture. But if I'm sitting there talking to someone who really doesn't know anything about all that, they go, why, what would make you believe that this archaic book is true? Because it's the only book I've read, and I've read a lot of them. It's the only book I've read that perfectly describes man that pulls back, even the heroes fail here. It perfectly describes man. Man is a sinner. And people don't realize really how big a deal that is. Why don't they realize how big a deal that is? Because they don't, they don't know anything about God. I, I like to use this illustration where it's like, you know, in the six days of creation, God... He tells planets to move in order, and they worship him. He tells stars to move in certain constellations, and they bow down and cry out, Amen. He tells mountains to be lifted up and valleys to be cast down, and they submit to him. He tells the sea, you will come to this point, and you will come no farther, and the great sea obeys. He looks at you and says, come, and you go, no. You've not sinned against some minor little politician in a small village somewhere. You have railed against the king of glory. Sin is horrific. But we can't understand how horrific sin is because most people don't know who God is. And most people don't know who God is because the very men who are supposed to be preaching about God are ignorant of God. Because they spend more time trying to figure out how to entertain people to heaven than train their minds in the scriptures. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this passage also gets a twist to it. We make it all about us. God had this wonderful plan and we all fell short of it. And, you know, being a Christian is trying to, you know, reach that greatest good for yourself. Well, Christianity does allow for that, certainly. But that's not the point here. The point is, you were created for the glory of God, and you're not living for the glory of God. You're living for you. And that in itself may be the most capital of crimes. So, but then he, he makes a change here in verse 24. Being justified, what does that mean? It not only means that all your sins have been taken away. If you read the Psalms really carefully, you realize that just being neutral will not get you to heaven. You have to be perfectly righteous to get to heaven. That means not only a life without sin, but a life with righteousness. The problem is you and I have sinned and we have no righteousness. So how can God justify someone like us? There is the problem. And he says, as a gift by his grace. Well, that still doesn't solve the problem. So God is showing grace, but is he denying his justice? But then we come to the answer. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. There's the answer. Remember that William Bates fellow that I told you about in the 17th century? He wrote the book, you know, The Harmony of the Attributes of God. But he wrote The Harmony of the Attributes of God in the cross of Christ. Only in the cross is the divine dilemma solved. Only in the cross does God show himself to be perfectly just and merciful at the same time with no contradiction. Now, when we talk about the perfections of God in theology, okay, a lot of people think, well, what we're talking about is that God doesn't do anything wrong. Well, that's just a tiny part of it. When we talk about the perfections of God, we're talking about also, for lack of a better word, so that we can grasp it, his personality. What do you mean? I don't know about you, but at least when I look in the mirror, I see a fractured person, even now. I can, I can be too strict. I can be too lenient. I can practice righteous anger to a point where it's now 
moved beyond righteous anger. And then I can pull back and not practice righteous anger. I mean, there's just conflict. I'm, I'm still, like we say, under construction. Well, with God, his personality, his, who he is as a person, there's no fractures. He's all these things that he says he is, but they're all in perfect agreement without any contradiction or friction between them, you see. So, so how does he do that? Well, God is going to punish every sin that's ever been committed. Now let's make it personal with regard to you. He's going to punish every sin you have or will ever commit. One of two ways. He will punish sin, your sin, throughout all eternity as his wrath abides upon you in hell. That's one way he can do it. But there's another way. When Jesus Christ was on that tree, the sin of his people was placed upon him. And all the wrath of almighty God that should fall upon the sin and those who committed that sin fell upon the Son. One of the things I have so much problem with, with, with much modern-day Catholic teaching and modern-day evangelical preaching, I find some commonality that's very dangerous in which... Jesus is turned into a martyr. The Bible does not teach that Jesus was a martyr in the sense of what we know as a martyr. He is a witness, that's for sure, and that word can be used that way. But he's not a victim martyr of men of some senseless act of violence, even though it was senseless act of violence. There was purpose. You see... I have preached now for many, many years, and I can't tell you, all over the world, I've had people come up to me, and I've explained what I'm going to explain to you, and they've come up to me, some of them crying, and have said, I have believed that Jesus died for my sins for 15 years or 20 years, and I've, I've trusted that that was the case, but I never understood it. How could it be that the Romans beat Jesus up and that paid for my sin? Somebody's not preaching out there. Now, what he suffered physically from the Romans and from his own people, all of that, that is part of the curse. If you go back to Deuteronomy and the, and the reestablishment of the covenant at Moab, all that was necessary. It, was a, it had to be a bloody sacrifice. There are so many things that went on there that go all the way back to, to Deuteronomy. But here's what you need to understand. Our sins were not paid for because the Romans beat up Jesus and nailed him to a cross. Our sins are paid for because on that cross, our sins were placed upon him, imputed to him in a real way. And all the holy hatred of God against evil, all the justice of God against you, his people, against your sin, fell on the sun. As it says in Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord, Yahweh, to crush him. Now, it doesn't mean that the father took pleasure out of crushing his son. What it means is the purposes of not just the father, but the son and the spirit, all in agreement together, their purpose of redemption was completed by the son being crushed under the wrath of Almighty God. Do you see that? Is God just? Yeah. He punished every sin that's ever been committed. Is he merciful? Yeah. How? He punished all the sins of his believing people on his son. For almost 40 years I have preached. 
I have put my life in danger. I have suffered horrible things. I have fought battles. We have started orphanages. We have planted churches. We have done all these things. And if I died right now, I would go to heaven for none of those reasons. If I died right now, I would go to heaven for one solitary, singular, exclusive reason. Jesus Christ died for sinners. The only thing I contributed to my salvation was my sin. And that's why you have to be so severe in preaching against this idea that somehow you can work your way to heaven or somehow you contributed something that leads to your eternal glory. Because it sucks all the glory away from the only one who is rightful bearer of it. And that is Jesus Christ. God did everything. If you're in a religion or you're in a church where you and Jesus got your own thing going, you need to get out of there. Those who boast Boast in the Lord. Rich men don't boast in their, in their riches or strong men in their strength or wise men in their wisdom or pious men in their piety. Because we know a real pious man who died a martyr according to Jewish tradition by the name of Isaiah, probably the greatest prophet, at least with regard to the gospel, who wrote in the Old Testament, we know that when he came into the presence of God, he said, I am ruined. I am broke to pieces. And by the way, just so you know, according to John 12, he was looking at the sun. You see, what you need to understand is it's not the father is just and wrathful and Jesus came in to save you from the father. That's not what's going on. Let me just put it this way, as blunt as I can. The Father is not the only one who's righteous here. The Son is righteous and the Spirit is righteous. And they would have all been unanimous, as they always are unanimous, in your condemnation as a sinner. But they all contrived your salvation, the plan of your salvation. And the Father sent the Son. And the Son submitted to the Father. Some theologians, and I would incline toward them, when you see this angel coming into Egypt, killing all the firstborn, the indication there in Psalms when you get over is that's deity. Many theologians believe it's a reference to the Son, that God Himself had come to judge, and God does what He does through the Son. But when the son saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over. The only way God will pass over you in judgment one day is the blood of the lamb, his son. Every, what you've got to understand about Christianity is everything is about the son. God created through the son. God maintains the world through the son. God reveals himself. Through the Son. God saves the world through the Son. God will judge the world through the Son. Our salvation. And the Father is pleased. Our salvation is a work of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's that work of the Son on our behalf. You see, the early church made so much of the cross. That they even kind of diverted into things they shouldn't have diverted into. Symbolisms and all sorts of things. Then they lost the meaning of the cross in many ways. But when we go back to scripture, we gain, regain the meaning of the cross. That it is there. The attributes of God are manifested as they've always been. Harmonized. Now, I want you to look at Paul's argument because a lot of people miss this. It says in verse 25 about Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, that's a, that's a lot. Now, notice God displayed him publicly. Christ, with regard to just redemption itself, if you 
pull redemption out of revelation, and I mean the, the God revealing himself, he, he could have put away sin in a hidden place. But the fact of the matter is, God displayed, or as the British say, God placard his son. Where? The very center, the religious center of the universe, Jerusalem. For everyone to see, high up on a tree. Everything was public. Why? God is trying to show not only man something, but all the angelic hosts something. God is revealing himself through the cross. Never forget this. The cross is the work of our redemption. But the big issue with the cross, it, it is the revelation of God. Without this revelation, we would never understand the mind of God. And I would submit to you, not, not even the angels would. Because of this dilemma. Now, so he displays Christ or placarded him publicly as a propitiation. As a propitiation. And although liberal scholars would disagree with me adamantly, and I don't care. <laughs> this is a sacrifice that satisfies justice. That allows wrath to be rightly removed. Now, why did God display this publicly for all the world to see, for all the angels to see? Paul tells us this was to demonstrate his righteousness. This is to prove that God's righteous. But someone says, why does God have to prove that? I mean, why does God have to prove that he's righteous? Well, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. And what does that mean? We'll just go back into history. Adam and Eve, he could have rightly killed them right there. Imagine for a moment, Satan. I sinned, and perfect justice was exercised. They sinned. Yes, justice, but the Proto-Evangelicum in Genesis 3.15, you're, you're promising them a Savior, not only a Savior, but my end. You're going to crush my head. They're guilty. They should die. Where's your justice? Where's your righteousness? Oh, Noah? No. The problem is not that God destroyed the world through the flood. The problem is God didn't destroy Noah. Noah was a sinner. So, Noah? <laughs> Noah, really? You're going to begin again with Noah? He's drunk. And his sons are perverts. At least one of them. Where's your justice? Oh, Abraham believed you? He lied to the king about his wife. Put her in jeopardy. Thought more of himself than the care of his own wife. Really? Oh, in Israel, they worshipped me in the desert, not you. You said so yourself. Oh, David, man after your own heart. Really? Bathsheba? How many died in that plague? His pride? Where's your justice? Even the prophets, right? Join in the chorus. God, the wicked triumph over those who are more righteous than they are. Angels peering. What is this? Our company, part of it fell. There was no olive leaf extended. Are we not higher than them? These things made of dirt? And then one day, God calls Satan and anyone else with a question in their mind or a railing in their voice, he calls them to the throne and he goes, do you want to know how I can give hope to the fallen parents of humanity? 
Do you want to know how I can save Noah from a flood? Do you want to know how I can call Abraham my friend and David my son? Look to Jerusalem where my son is placard on a tree, dying for the sins of them all. And at that moment, the accuser, remember, we're so self-centered. Whenever we talk about the accuser, people think, oh, my accuser. He's God's accuser also. He was silenced. He cannot accuse God. Where is your justice? And he cannot accuse God's people. And that's why and how that even though he's alive and well on planet Earth to some degree. He's beat. He's beat. If God just pardoned the whole lot of his people, he said, well, he's God. He can do anything he wants. No, he's God. So he does what he is. What he is determines what he wants. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly merciful. And he solved the problem. And that's why angels long to look. That's why angels long to look, you see. But now here's another thing you need to see. Let's go back to Paul says you were justified. <clears throat> Christ not only died for you, and this is so important for you to understand. Please understand this part. Christ not only died for you. He lived for you. He was your substitute, not just in death, but he was your substitute in life. Remember what the father always said about him? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's because he was righteous. Everything he did was righteous because he was righteous. Well, guess what? The moment you trust in Christ... All your sins are pardoned a virtue of his death on Calvary. And then you are clothed with all his good works. All his righteousness. You see, we have one here borrowing from biblical language. We hear that we have one here that's greater than angels. We have one here that's greater than Moses. We have one here that's greater than Joseph. Because he was willing to share his coat of many colors with his sinful brothers. His righteousness. Do you realize, Saint, you, you are in a stage of, you are in the stage of posse peccari. You are in the stage of being able to sin. One day you will be in the stage of non posse peccari, glorified. You will be unable to sin. But here's what you need to understand. You won't be more righteous before the throne of God in heaven than you are right now. Because positionally, it's finished. He not only died for you and took away your sin. He clothed you in his righteousness. And what did you add to that? We have a brilliant mathematician here. Zero. <laughs> Zero. That's what you added to that. And you see, that, that, that's why this is so sad when, when the devil does this, but also when, when any institution or organization takes even 1% of that 100% away from Jesus, they've become heretical. That's what you need to understand. It's not... 99% Jesus and 1% you, because that 1% is going to send you to hell. It's all Christ. And what do we do? We cling to him. We have one hope. That what he did on that tree was sufficient. He said it was. It is finished. The father said it was. When did the father say that? When he raised him from the dead. It's finished. And, and that, believers, is our hope and our joy. And that's why he is our boast and our only boast. And that's why 
Paul the Apostle, who served Christ for at least 30, 35 years, more maybe, of untold suffering, of untold devotion and piety and everything else, he entered into heaven for the same reason the thief did on the cross. Because Jesus Christ died for sinners. Now, religious legalists, they don't like that. I do. <laughs> I wouldn't have any hope if it wasn't that case. If that wasn't the case, I'd have no hope. You say, well, if you're here today and you're visiting, maybe, you, well, I've never heard anything like this before. I was trusting that I'm basically good. Well, hopefully, you're trusting now that you're not. That you're relying upon God's word to know that you're not. And that you see that Christ is all sufficient and your faith is in him. And, and I can't tell you what a, I don't know how to express it. Maybe some sort of a drama. I could just go like this. Just come unto him all you who are weary and heavy laden. Who are scared about death and scared about COVID and scared about salvation and Scared about will you go to hell? Will you go to heaven? Will you go to purgatory? Where will you go? You can know. I boast in Christ. Christ alone. Nothing else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, dear God, that you would use it. Use your word, Lord, in the heart of this people. Oh, and Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, that they would today climb up on the rock that is Christ, throw themselves, fall upon Christ. Not, not a church, not a preacher, not themselves, but Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.